Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. My name is Darren, and I'm uh, one of the shepherds on staff. If you're family around here, it's nice to see all of you. And if you're a guest, we're excited that you're here as well. And uh, we're continuing in a study we've been in for a while in the book of John. We're picking up in the middle of, uh, of John chapter 8 this week. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got one of those John journals, we'd, uh, we'd love for you to follow along with us. We're kind of all journaling through this as we go. I want to say this as we begin. We're going to dive in here in just a second. Last week at the beginning of John chapter 8, we saw this incredible demonstration of the grace of Jesus, where the woman who's caught in adultery is brought before Jesus, and he looks at her, and he basically, you know, they're trying to trap Jesus, but he essentially says, hey, all right, whichever of us is without sin can throw the first stone, Jesus being the only one who qualifies, and one by one, her accusers walk away. He looks at her, and he says, where did your accusers go? And she says, they're gone. He says, neither then do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. There's this beautiful demonstration of the grace, the generosity, and the kindness of God. And then what's so interesting is that when we look at the rest of John chapter 8, there is some of the most um, difficult and kind of heavy declarations of truth that Jesus makes in the rest of John chapter 8 that we see in the entirety of the book of John for sure, and in some cases, the Bible. He says some very heavy stuff here in the last part of John 8. And I want to say that in this particular case, Jesus is declaring these amazing truths, but they can sometimes be difficult to receive. And we're going to see that in the text today as well. There are people who are standing around the outside of the crowd. You know, we know that Jesus is declaring these things in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? He's in the temple courts, the the court of women. There's all kinds of celebration going on. We know that it's happening on the the last, the greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that Jesus is, or Jesus is alluding to the idea that as the high priest has poured out the pitcher of water, he then looks at the crowd and says, you have to come to me if you're thirsty. I am the living water. I'm where you want to come for a drink. So while the, the book of John doesn't give us the parables of Jesus the way the Synoptic Gospels do, what the book of John does give us is the way in which Jesus uses his life to illustrate points. He's very uh, aware of the circumstances he's in, and he's almost living a parabolic life. Does that make sense? As opposed to telling parables, he's using his circumstances and pointing out the ways in which the circumstances and even their organized religion point to him. But what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 8, both at the beginning and the end, is he's trying to call to the people that are sitting around the outside of the crowd and say, you, you have to believe in me. I want you to trust in me. I want you to know me. You desperately need me. And the reason I point that out before we even dig into the text this morning is that I, I would guess that in a room like this, there are many, and maybe you've been with us since we started this Gospel of John series, there, there are probably many in the room who are in that very same position this morning. That you're just not quite sure about Jesus. You've heard the stories, we've listened to his speeches, we've studied it together, we've sung songs about him, but you may still be the kind of person that perceives themselves as being an outsider, that perceives themselves as being unsure about Jesus. You know what he said, you understand what he's declared, you've seen what he's done, but you're not sure that you believe in him. Well, I want you to know today that as we read this text, as we look at what Jesus says in John chapter 8, he has you in mind. He's looking at the literal crowd in front of him in the court of women, and he's declaring these truths because he recognizes there are people who are unsure in their assessment of who he is, and he wants you to be sure. In the same way that he recognizes there were people in the crowd then, he recognized when he delivered this address that there would be many in the room today, 2019, who were still kind of on the periphery, were still kind of on the edge, 
And he's speaking to you because he wants you to hear these incredible promises. Now, for the sake of continuity this morning, we're going to move really quickly through the text. We've got a lot to cover. I want to give you my outline at the outset. So if you're taking notes or you're filling out the journal, you kind of have all this stuff. We're going to see three incredible, brilliant promises that Jesus makes in John chapter 8. We're going to see a promise about light. We're going to see a promise about liberty. And we're going to see a promise about life. He makes promises about light, liberty, and life. And those three promises of Jesus in John chapter 8 are immediately then met. The crowd meets those promises with a response. And the response is not necessarily what we'd imagine. The response that he receives from the crowd is ignorance and indignation and insult. I've done done a lot of work this week to get my alliteration right because I have my annual review with the elders this week. So I'm really trying to impress them, right? We see him declare light and liberty and life, and that declaration, those promises are met with ignorance and indignation and insult, and ultimately, the the ignorance and the indignation and the insult are caused because of self, Satan, and separation. We're going to come to all of those in turn, but I wanted you to see them in advance, and we'll walk through it, and I'll show you what I mean as we go. As we begin this morning, let's look at these incredible promises, because there are three of them here, and I want you to see them in turn. We'll begin in verse 12 of John chapter 8. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For the record, this is the second of the big I am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. This is the second, right? He says, I am the light of the world. And it's important for us to understand what he's saying there. He says, I am the light. That's singular. He's referring to himself as the singular illumination for not just the Jews, not just those who believed in him, not just his disciples, not just one particular group of people, not just one group of people who believe the right things about him. He's saying, I am the singular light. I'm the singular source of illumination for the world. And in that, he includes all of us, all of mankind, no matter who we are, no matter where we're at. Jesus is saying, the world, apart from me, is in darkness. There is a light, and it's me. He doesn't here say, I am a light. He doesn't say in this text, I'm one of several ways to find the path. He says, I'm the light of the world. And then interestingly, in the same promise, he he sort of explains what that looks like. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Note here that Jesus' intention is to make followers, to create followers, people who will follow him on a path. That's about a life. It's not just about believing a set of principles. It's not just about acknowledging a certain set of theological ideas. Jesus isn't just looking for converts. He's saying those who follow me, which is about an ongoing life lived in pursuit of Christ, those who follow me will not walk in darkness. And the implication or the insinuation there is that for those who do not follow Christ, they continue to walk in darkness. That apart from following Jesus, the only option we have is to walk in darkness. He says those who follow me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life have the light of life. He's saying the light that I am is yours. It can be yours, and all that is required is follow me. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, will have the light of life. I'm reminded when I think about having the light of life of John chapter 1. Remember all the way back in our study in John chapter 1, when it says life was in Jesus, that he is our light, 
He's the only place we find illumination. I, I know you guys live in the same world in which I live, and there are a lot of times where I feel like I, I can't see clearly. There are a lot of dark places in the world. There are a lot of dark things I see on the news. There are a lot of people trying to navigate, and it feels like they're trying to navigate blindly. Jesus says, yeah, would you like to not walk in darkness anymore? I'll make you a promise if you follow me. Because I'm the light of the world, you'll no longer walk in darkness. He's offering illumination. He's offering guidance. He's offering protection, right? In the Feast of Tabernacles, they're celebrating. So just to give you the context, in the Feast of Tabernacles, they're celebrating the wanderings of the people of Israel when they left Egypt. They build these little booths and they live in them for a week. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, there's the pouring out of the water ceremony, but there's also the lighting of these enormous candelabras, these enormous menorahs. And it's in the shadow of that incredible light that Jesus is looking at the crowd and saying, you think that light's impressive? I'm the light of the world. He's also alluding to the idea that when their ancestors, the Hebrew people, were wandering in the wilderness, that they were led and guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. He's pointing back and saying that pillar of fire that led your ancestors was me. I am the guide. I am the protector. I am the one who provides illumination and guidance. It's an incredible promise. He says, I'm the light. Let's look at the second promise he makes here. If you jump down with me to 31 in this speech or in this, in this interaction, in 31, Jesus makes the second. He first has declared a promise about light. Now he gives us a promise about liberty. He says this in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The second great promise in this text is a promise of liberation. He says, if you abide in my word, we talked a couple years ago about the idea of abiding, that the word abiding is a weird one, but it essentially means to remain actively still. Abiding is to remain actively still, that you're working hard to stay fixed in the same position, right? He says, if you abide in my word, then what? you'll be my disciples. Again, he's not looking for converts. He's not looking for people who know the right answers on the Bible trivia quiz. He's looking for disciples, followers. And he says the definition of discipleship is an active remaining or an active stillness, a remaining and abiding in my word. If you abide in my word, you then are truly my disciples, as opposed to those who maybe just believe some things about me, You're truly my disciples, and look what he says happens for those who are truly my disciples. He says, if you're truly my disciples, you will know the truth, verse 32, and the truth will set you free. Well, what what truth is he talking about? Is he talking about some secret knowledge, some secret information that once you abide in his word and you're truly his disciples, then he gives you the codes? No, no, no. The truth he's talking about is himself. Jesus is the truth, right? We saw, again, in John 1, 14... In John 1.14, when we were studying the first chapter, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. And in essence, what he's saying is, if you abide in me, you will know me. I am the truth. John 14.6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. Jesus is saying, the truth you need is me. The truth that I am the Son of God. The truth that I have come to the earth to take your sin upon myself. The truth that you can't save yourself and that I am gonna die in your place. The truth that you can have resurrection life extended to you by my grace. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will be truly my disciples 
and you will know the truth, and, but it isn't just knowing the truth. The truth will do something. When you know the truth that is Christ and his saving work, you will be set free. You'll be liberated. You'll be liberated from your enslavement. Jesus says, I'm the light. He says you can have liberation. That's the second of his great promises here. And the third one we find in verse 51. Jump all the way down to the end of John 8. In John 8, 51, we see the last of these beautiful promises. In John 8, 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, that word keeping there means to hold on to or protect. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Wow. If you keep my word, if you listen to what I've said, remember that Jesus is the living word of God made flesh. He says, anyone who protects or preserves my word will never taste death. The death goes out the window, right? You have spiritual life that goes on and on and on. You'll never taste death. He offers them light. He promises them liberation, liberty, and he promises them life. These are incredible promises. Incredible that Jesus would look at the crowd and say, in me you can have the illumination you need and you can have liberation from that which enslaves you and you can have life, very life, where only before death reigned. You would think that in light of those declarations, these beautiful promises, that the crowd would be like, yeah, right? This is awesome. We got light and liberty and life from this Jesus. I mean, when I, when I declare these things in a room like this that has a good percentage of Christ followers in it, When we hear these things, that he is our light and he is our liberty and he is our life, we want to stand up and cheer. But that isn't the reception that Jesus received. The reception that Jesus received in response to these beautiful promises, in response to these incredible declarations, as I've already said, was ignorance and indignation and insult. But why? The the reason that the crowd responds the way they do, and the thing you and I have to be careful of in our own lives, is that Coupled with each and every one of these truths is an acknowledgement of our need. Let me say that again. Coupled with every one of these truths, every one of these promises comes with it a dark recognition of our current state, right? So for Jesus to say to the crowd, I am the light of the world and I will illuminate your path, right? He's essentially also saying at the same time, you're walking in darkness and you need light. You don't have light apart from me. And they don't like that. They don't like that, 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 uh, that statement. He looks at them and says, I can liberate you. And we will literally see them say, we've never been slaves to anybody. We're not enslaved. We're free. We've always been free. What don't they like? The fact that in saying I will, that my truth will set you free, that he's absolutely stating unequivocally that they are imprisoned, that they are bound, that they are enslaved to sin and death. And by saying to them that if you keep my word, you will never taste death, what he's saying, the opposite of that is, if you don't keep my word, you will only taste death. You're spiritually dead now, and you will remain spiritually dead forever. You'll never taste anything else, because life can only be found. We don't, we don't like the exposure of that. The crowd doesn't like the awkwardness, the fact that he's saying things about them that are negative. Even though he's making these great promises, it feels hard for them to take. I, uh, I know exactly what this is like. I, uh, I had to go to the doctor a couple of months ago. I, I, you don't care about this, but I have a little rash on my eyelid. I know that's like too much information. But I have a little rash on my eyelid, and it's weird when you have a rash on your eyelid because the, the skin there is really thin, so you can't just use any kind of medicine. You have to have like special medicine, otherwise you could mess up your vision, right? So I go to my doctor, and I'm like, I've got this rash, and I just don't know what to put on it because I don't want to mess up my eyesight. 
And my doctor goes, yeah, you know what? Because it's so close to your eye, like I, I don't feel comfortable making a recommendation. My doctor said, you need to go to a dermatologist and get like a professional recommendation. And, and I was like, oh, okay. And, and she goes, but you know what? You're in luck because we have one of the best dermatologists in all the country operates out of our same office. She's right here in Fullerton. And like, you can, you know, if you can see her, she's incredible. She's an incredible expert. So I, I'm like, okay, so I go to get a, a reservation or whatever you call, like an appointment, not a, I'm not having dinner. Um, <laughs> I go to get an appointment to see the dermatologist and the dermatologist is in such high demand that I can't even get in to see her for like five, four or five months, right? So I put myself on the schedule, five months goes by, I finally get in to go and see the dermatologist, I go and it's my first time and I'm talking to the assistant and the assistant's like, well, tell us why you're here today. And I said, well, I have this rash on my eyelid, I just need to know what medicine I can use, no big deal. And the assistant goes, well, is there anything else you want the doctor to see while you're here today? And I said, no, it's just my eyelid. And he goes, well, let me put this another way. He says, you've got an appointment right now to see one of the foremost dermatologists in the country. Like, people wait a long time to get in to see her. He's like, if it were up to me, he's like, I would probably want that doctor to kind of get a more comprehensive view, you know, like, check you out entirely. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, it wouldn't be a terrible idea to just have her do like a whole check of all your skin to make sure you don't have any dangerous moles, no cancer, whatever discoloration. And he goes, doesn't that make sense? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And I said, yeah, so that's fine. I'll, yeah, I'll just do that. I'll do like a whole exam. And he goes, okay, well, then you're going to get naked. And I'm like, oh, great. No, I just, uh, I, I was going to, I was just planning to have you look at my eye. Uh, I'm not even sure like if I wore good underwear today, you know, whatever. I'm not, I don't know how it's going to go. So, but I did, I, I took off all my clothes. I know too much information. I'm waiting in the room in just my underwear. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, I just wanted somebody to look at my eyelid, you know, and now... I'm really kind of exposed here. And uh, so I'm sitting there waiting. Finally, the doctor comes in and she's got her clipboard. You know, I'm a new patient, so she's reading the data on me or whatever. She walks in, uh, closes the door, and she looks up and she goes, oh, you're my pastor. And I'm like, no, no. She goes, it's so nice to meet you. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's great to meet you too. I, hi. So glad we go to church together, you know? Like, I, everything in me, you guys, wanted to get out of there, right? Like, get my clothes and go away because, like, this is the first time I'm meeting her and she's like a pro, and here I am. I'm, I'm thinking she's never gonna be able to come to our church again, right? <laughs> like, you couldn't, you couldn't keep coming if you'd seen the pastor in his. Trust me, you couldn't keep coming. And, uh, <laughs> So I'm just feeling like there's this part of me that wants to deflect and dismiss. I just want to get away. But there's another part of me that goes, no, as awkward and uncomfortable as this exposure feels, as weirded out as it feels to be this exposed to someone I'm just meeting, I need this exposure because she knows better than I do what condition I'm in. I need her to check me to tell me if I've got anything dangerous on the surface of my skin, and nobody knows that better than she does. Does it feel awkward? Is it uncomfortable? Do I wish I could cover up or pretend like I wasn't there? Yeah, but I need her to speak truth to me. And so I remain in the midst of the uncomfortability and the awkwardness, and turns out I, I still have a little bit of a rash on my eyelid, but I didn't have any cancer, so that's nice, right, at the time. Jesus declares to the people in this crowd, he says, I am the light of the world, you don't have to walk in darkness. I am the truth, and that truth will liberate you from enslavement to sin. I am life, and if you remain in my word, you will never taste death. And their response is, are you saying we're dying? Are you saying we're in the darkness? 
Are you trying to say that we're enslaved? And as a result, they work to reject his expert opinion. They miss out on the promise because of their response or because they're exposed, because they're, they're, they're exposed and awkward, right? Let's look at it together. We'll kind of buzz through this rapidly. In verse 12, Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. And this is their response. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're not responding at all to his claim about them walking in darkness. They're saying, well, technically, you're talking about yourself, and therefore, we can't accept your testimony. There's not a second witness. It's an interesting claim for them to make on a technicality because Jesus himself brought this argument up a couple of chapters back, you may remember, when he said, I don't testify about myself. The Father testifies with me. There are two witnesses. But what are the Pharisees trying to do here? They're trying to dismiss his statement about them being in the darkness by pointing out a legal technicality, by trying to misdirect, if you will, in their ignorance. The Pharisees said, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He says, the Father and I are testifying, both through my miracles and my declaration, through my incarnation, that I am who I say I am. And yet you dismiss it because you're judging from a human judgment. You're judging in the flesh, he says. You're judging with natural eyes. And apart from the light of the world, the flesh can only judge in darkness. Imagine trying to make some sort of an assessment in the pitch black. You can't see anything. He says you can't judge because you're judging in the flesh. So you have to listen to the testimony of my father and I. They said to him, therefore, in verse 19, where is your father? They're, again, not talking about their own darkness. They're not talking about the light. They're asking him a specific question about the location of his father because they want to hear him say, well, I've already told you my father's in heaven so that they can accuse him of being guilty of blasphemy. Where is your father, they say. And he says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now you might first hear Jesus say this thing about them dying in their sin. And you go, well, that's a little harsh. That feels a little bit rough to say to a crowd of people, hey, you're gonna die in your sin. But what I want you to notice in the text is there's an urgency to Jesus' message. He actually loves these people. He cares about them. He sees them in their ignorance. He sees them in the darkness. He sees them misdirecting and asking all the wrong questions and trying to pull the rug out from underneath his authority, trying to misdirect and dismiss his claims. And he's looking at them and going, say, he's saying, folks, I'm not gonna be here that much longer. I'm not going to be here able to teach in the court of the treasury very much longer. And you need to listen to me because when I go, you're not going to be able to find me and you're going to die in your sins. I'm trying to help you see that you don't need to die in your sins. But the people don't see it. They don't get it. They don't understand what he's saying. They say to him, verse 25, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning I've been saying the same things again and again. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. 
And they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's essentially looking at the crowd and saying, there's this ignorance that's driving your questions and your confusion, but there is a day coming when I will be lifted up. He's pointing to the cross. And he's saying, there's a day coming when you will see the cross in full view, and you will understand that you missed an opportunity here to be brought into the light, to be set free from your bondage, to find life instead of death. There's a day coming when everyone will see the truth of the cross, But Jesus' hope is that he can capture their hearts, that he can declare the truth to them, that they would have faith. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, you'll see it. As he was saying these things, it says in verse 30, many believed in him. There were some there in the crowd who went, yeah, you know what, this makes sense. They start to move in from the periphery. But look at how it continues. Verse 31, the second of the great promises here. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He said, it's not just about believing one thing I've said in the temple courts. It's about abiding in my word. It's about being true disciples, right? And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And then look at what happens. The indignation rise up. We'd already seen ignorance. Now watch the indignation. He says, if you know the truth, which is me, the truth will set you free. And here's their response. They answered in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Are you calling us slaves? Do you see their chests puff up? Do you see their indignation rise up here? They're like, you can't tell us that we're going to be set free because we're not enslaved. We're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody. It's almost laughable that they say this because the Jewish people, their history is defined by enslavement, right? They were enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt. But sometimes in our pride and in our indignation, We set aside what we know to be true in order to make our point, don't we? We're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. We're not slaves. Don't you call us slaves. Jesus said in 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Not only is there indignation about the fact that he said that they were enslaved, but now there's indignation about their sort of ethnic and religious heritage. We're Jewish people, right? They're saying we are children of Abraham and we don't know who your father is. They're gonna get there in a second. But be careful what you say about our father because we're Jewish people. Their, Their pride in their ethnicity, their pride in their religion... It's still just their indignation. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says to them in 39, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Jesus is setting up an argument here and they start to sense it coming, right? They start to sense it coming. He looks at them and says, you say you're children of Abraham, but you're not doing the things Abraham did. You're doing the things 
a different person did. A different person is indicative of the kind of things you're doing. You're lying and trying to murder. Abraham trusted God. Abraham was obedient to God. Abraham listened to God and went where God told him to go. Abraham took his very son up to the top of the mountain and was willing to sacrifice him there because God called him to. That's not what you're doing. You don't look like the children of Abraham. You look like somebody else's children. Jesus is starting to build a case here about part of what their issue is and they can sense it coming. And so they move from indignation to insult. They move from indignation to insult. Look at this in verse 41. He says, you're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Make no mistake, what the people are doing here is they're calling into question the parentage of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is born of a virgin, right? It's sort of a a matter of public record that Joseph had said that he was not the father of, of Jesus in a genetic sense, right? And so here what they're doing, and this is typical of us as well, Jesus has made these beautiful promises, but they expose us. They expose our lack of light and life and liberty, and that feels weird. And so in essence, to try and cover ourselves up, we start you know, with misdirection and dismissal. We start by, you know, just in our ignorance, and we move along to indignation where we puff up in pride. And if those things don't work, then the last thing is insult. They're basically just trying to cut him down. They look at him and say, well, we don't know. You know our father is Abraham. We weren't born of sexual immorality like some people are. We got two names on our birth certificate, Jesus, do you, right? They're calling into question his origin. They're calling into question his parentage, which is really interesting because again and again, Jesus has said, my father and I are one. My father and I are on the same mission. We're doing the same things. They say, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Verse 42, Jesus responds to them. If God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. It's too exposing. It's too awkward. It's too uncomfortable. Why can't you hear what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus looks at them and says, you're not acting like Abraham's your father. If I just look at your conduct, if I just look at the way you carry yourselves, I would say you come from a different family. The family that you look most like to me would be the parentage of Satan. You are children of the devil. Now that's heavy, right? These are heavy things that he's saying to them, but he's saying, look at your life. Your life is all about deceit. Your life is all about murder. Who's a deceiver and a liar and has been from the beginning? It's not Abraham. It's not the God you say is your father. The one who's all about deceit and murder is Satan. He has been that from the beginning. And so when I look at you, you don't look like children of Abraham. You look like children of the devil. That's heavy. By the way, as as a side note, but an important side note, if you have any question whatsoever in, in whether or not Jesus believed in a personal Satan, like a person who is the devil, who is our enemy, the enemy of Christ, the enemy of his church, the enemy of his people. Jesus doesn't believe in Satan as a sort of a myth. He doesn't believe in Satan as like a, an evil force. He doesn't believe in Satan as a sort of a, like a, a wicked idea or a wicked energy. Jesus is here talking about a person, an evil, murderous villain who is the enemy of you and your God. And Jesus says here, you don't look like Abraham, you look like the devil. I'm sure you can imagine how they... appreciated that. 
He looks at them in 45 and says, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Because I tell the truth. Why? Because they're enslaved to sin. Because they've been deceived by Satan. Because of their pride. He says, it's literally because I'm speaking truth to you that you can't understand it. If I was speaking lies to you, you'd get it because that's the language you speak. If I was trying to deceive you, you'd get it because that's the language you speak. You don't speak truth because you have not been illuminated, because you have not been rescued from your enslavement and because you do not have life. He says, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And then in 46, he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? By the way, there is no other spiritual leader or political leader or corporate leader in the history of mankind who can safely ask that question in front of a crowd. There's no other person, there's no religious figure, there's no political leader who can get up in front of a crowd and go, which one of you convicts me of sin? Because the moment you say that out loud, the people will start pointing out all of your brokenness. Jesus is the only one who is fit to ask this question in a crowd because he has no sin. He looks at the crowd and says, which one of you convicts me? And the answer is none of them because there is no sin there. He is perfect. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You're enslaved and in the darkness and spiritually dead. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I like that their response now, they're still insulting him, by, both by calling a Samaritan, who that's an ethnic slur, by the way, they're, they're pointing out that they thought of the Samaritans as half-breeds, so because they don't know for sure about Jesus' parentage, they're saying, for all we know, you might be a Samaritan, and to them, that was an ugly thing, right? They say, are we not right? And I like the indignation of that too, the pride of that. Isn't that where we begin a lot of times? Am I, am I not right? I think I'm right. I'm pretty sure I'm right. It's that self-confidence that has led them astray. Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? They insult him again. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There's that third promise. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? As a side note, the answer to that question is, yeah, he is. They say, are you greater than the prophets who died? Again, the answer is yes. Who do you make yourself out to be? And that's a great question they ask. But he's been answering that all along, right? Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Are you saying you're greater than the prophets? To say that we won't taste death? I mean, all of these heroes of the faith tasted death. Are you greater than them? Jesus, in answer to their question, who do you make yourself out to be, answered in 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
And if you have, again, any question about whether or not Jesus claimed to be God, whether Jesus thought of himself as deity, make no mistake, this is an unequivocal claim to Godhood. He uses the name of God, the way that God was referred to all throughout the Old Testament. Remember when, uh, when Moses says, what am I supposed to tell the Egyptians and the Israelites when they ask me who sent me? God says, tell them, I am sent you. Here Jesus says in no uncertain terms, He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He's not just saying I'm older than Abraham. He's not just saying he is pre-existing. He's saying before Abraham was, I was. I am God, right? And they, they, they don't have any question about what he said. If you have any question about how the crowd took that, look at the last verse here, 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I'm assuming they picked up the same stones they were gonna use to kill the woman caught in adultery earlier. Those are still lying around, abandoned. Jesus looks at them and he says, I am light, so you don't have to walk in darkness. I am liberty, so you don't have to be enslaved to sin and death. And I am life, so that you can live and never taste death. And the people's response is ignorance and indignation and insult. But notice here the urgency of Jesus. He keeps drawing them back to himself. I want you to believe in me. You can't believe in me. Why, is there, why, why did they meet him with insult and indignation and ignorance? There's a couple of things, and we'll close with this this morning. The first one is self. Self, the self gets in the way, their pride. The same thing that in the waiting, you know, in in the dermatologist's office made me want to go, well, you know, why don't we have a look at your moles? How about that? You know, like it's a, there's a part of me that just wants to misdirect, wants to lead away, right? That same self gets in the way. There's a selfishness. That's why Jesus says again and again, you're judging in the flesh. You're from below, I'm from above. You can't hear me because I'm speaking a language that you don't know. The language is truth. But it's not the language your father speaks. The first thing Jesus sort of points to is their selfishness gets in the way, their own sort of natural ability to assess. The second thing Jesus points to is Satan. And I don't know what you think about this. I don't want to freak you out. But in this church, we believe that Satan is real, that he is a real enemy. He's not, a, he's not an idea. He's not a concept. He's not a myth. That Satan is actually the enemy of Christ and his church and his people. And there may be some of you here this morning whose eyes have been blinded by a deceiver who is actively working to cloud your thoughts, to deceive you and to murder you. This isn't a figure of speech. It's not an allegory. He is the enemy of you. And it's possible in this place that you have been deceived by Satan, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So there's self and there's Satan, and lastly, there's separation. You see, fundamentally, there's a separation between us and God that we can't fix, that we can't solve, that we can't, satisfy. That separation between us and God is created by our sin. It's created by our walking in darkness and our lack of life and our lack of liberty. And we can't rescue ourselves. There's nothing we can do in our own efforts. We need a savior. Jesus comes and his light and liberty and life to bridge the gap, to close the distance, to reconcile God to man because there is a separation. Separation and Satan and self may be clouding our view. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning who are on the outside and you're looking at Jesus and you're having a hard time. Can I tell you that the only way you will find illumination, the only way you will be led out of the darkness, the only way you will find life in the midst of spiritual death, the only way you will be set free from the bondage of sin is through the power of Jesus who is light and liberty and life. There is no other route to closing that gap. Throughout this text, we see the crowd's people saying, he's not with us. 
he's not with us. But over the top of that note, we hear Jesus saying again and again, I want you to be with me, (laughs) right? I want you to be with me. And Jesus would say the same thing to us this morning. I am light and liberty and life. Don't let yourself or the enemy, Satan, or this separation keep us apart any longer. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a humility, a humility and a willingness to allow ourselves to be exposed, to be able to come to you who are the only source of truth, the only source of illumination, the only source of life, and allow your expert view to drown out the other voices, that you would look at us and see us, even in our brokenness, and that we would reach out to you and receive the gift of life that only you give. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.